some of the material today I've taught in one form or the other for a long time. And I tend to be that one of those right all over the board kind of teachers, so I'm always wiping it off with my arm. But I'll try at least to stick with the Stick with the plan today. We're looking at narrative devices. If you weren't here last week, I am Nancy Posey. I've taught, I've been an English teacher and literature teacher for a long time. And I especially love teaching about the narrative. We've already kind of established that the story, you know, just the story is something that's just burnt into us. It's how we learn best. It's how we teach best. And it's understanding how narrative works is the way we make sense of all kinds of stories. So one of the one we're, we'll be looking at three aspects if we get to them all today, and I'll uh, try to be real careful about that. But we're going to start with plot. And what's the definition of plot? Storyline. It's a storyline. It's the what happens. You know, when when we read something, you have to understand plot before, before what happens before you can understand uh, what it means, the theme. And some people say there are only two, there are really only two plot lines. It's either uh, a stranger comes to town or a boy leaves home, which is really just one storyline depending on the setting. Because the boy that leaves home, when he shows up somewhere, he's, uh, he's a stranger. But I'm, I'm going to show you some things. There won't be a test, so you can kind of relax and take in what you need to. But understanding how a plot develops how a story is arranged helps us to make sense of one and also as the little video we'll see today points out it helps us to, uh, to know how to back up and see the big picture because while the Bible is 66 books how many stories is it really it's one it's God's story and the whole arc is moving toward it's moving toward the, the cross in the Old Testament especially before we even, so just a little, uh, have you ever quit a, reading a book about a chapter or so in? You know, they say the, the rule of thumb is how many pages do you have to read before you stop? A hundred minus your age. Because the, <laughs> cause the older you get, the more books you've got to get to, so you know, at least that, but sometimes you, yeah, we, we can skim now. Uh, but sometimes you'll, you'll start a book, and at the beginning, you think, come on, when's it going to happen? One, a good example, my mother introduced me to James Mishner. And if you've ever read Centennial, she said, now I want you to read it, but you've got to get through the first two chapters. They're about rocks and buffalo. But you really need to know, that, you know, so I knew that, you know, rocks don't do anything, you know, except maybe wear away or tumble. And buffalo, you know, it's really hard to distinguish between the characters in, in the story. <laughs> but I needed to know that. Unless you're reading a short story where it has a story will, there's some information you need to find out sometimes. A lot of times you don't even realize why it's important. Every single thing that happens in To Kill a Mockingbird, for instance, you're told on page one. You just don't know it yet. Uh, but in the beginning, the exposition, they're just thinking who, what, when, where. But it, it, it's informational, informational, and then something happens. Sometimes we call it the inciting instant or the narrative hook. Uh, one of secular short stories, one of my favorites is uh, The Most Dangerous Game. I don't know, it's one of those classic ninth grade uh, anthology stories. And it starts, there's a boat, there, there's a man who's a hunter, and he's talking to the ship captain about where they are. They're, they're, they're in the dark part of the ocean, 
but he, he, he's told, you know, we're really close to a place the sailors call Ship Trap Island. Information, information. And then the captain leaves, leaves the hunter. It's leaning over the rail, smoking his pipe, and it's so dark we're told that he can't see his hand in front of his eye. He drops his pipe, reaches for it, and tumbles into the water. Something happens. At that point, we don't need information. We know where he is and we know why that's a danger and he's going to be, he's not going to be able to swim to catch up with the ship. He has to move towards Ship Trap Island. So that narrative hook, we, we have to have a problem. Good authors aren't afraid to get their characters in trouble when they're making up a story. Uh, the authors of the Bible didn't have to invent all, you know, something happens and conflict begins to develop. Until it reaches that point, the climax, that where there's no turning back. Have any of you ever jumped out of an airplane or a with a parachute? No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Otherwise, yeah. You know, unless you're Bugs Bunny, you know, or the Roadrunner, you know, you're up there. You got the, you know, you checked your chute and you're it's strapped on and they open the door and they tell you to step out. And from that point, can you step back on? No matter how fast that step. From that point on, things happen. It started, it, the consequences of that one action. So it's always interesting in a big story to think, okay, where's that one place where we could turn back? And it might have been different. And then it, this is where we start reaping. It's that snowball rolling down the hill until we end a conclusion, the conclusion of the conflict. And a satisfying story, you know, it may surprise you, but the conflict is resolved at the end. And then I didn't add the little French word, uh, denouement. Yeah, I wanted my Alex Trebek channeling. But sometimes you'll reach the end and you not only know what happened, but you kinda, it, it kind of unravels. The best way to see that, any Perry Mason fans or you know, Matt Lott? You know, you problem, 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 and then, of course, they're always, you know, reach that point where it seems, it seems like things are really going to be a problem for the accused. And then the, the guilty person is always in the courtroom and jumps up and goes, oh, okay, I did it. <laughs> and then the conflict, you know, man, you know, the state of wherever versus is over. But they always have a commercial, and then they come back to the office, and Paul, you know, Paul and Della and Perry talk about, how did you figure that out? You know, the unraveling that comes at the end. But sometimes stories do stop short. So there, this is the tr the plot pyramid, but it doesn't always look like that. Sometimes it looks like Groundhog Day, or sometimes we get here and then it's at the Lady or the Tiger. But recognizing the elements of plot are real helpful. You also can have a story without conflict. You could not have a, even a short story where I had a really great day, nothing bad happened. Conflict is it's what keeps us turning pages. Uh, it's what makes it, it, it. Have you ever had a day with no conflict at all? When you were fully conscious. <laughs> so, well, ninth grade English review. What are the kinds of conflict we find in a story, whether it's true or fictional? Man versus um, man versus man. You know, whether it's you know, I walk over and punch Hilton in the nose. That would be man versus man. Or if we decide we're going to attack. Uh, Brentwood Baptist as a you know, group, whether it, it can be one part and it can be man versus woman, but there's a lot of human conflict. What are some other kinds of conflict? 
man versus God. Or in some stories, man versus fate. A lot of times it depends on the belief system of the characters in the story. Yeah, that, uh, one of my, the most poignant points in King Lear is when the character says, oh, you know, things are so bad it can't possibly get any worse. And, you know, and then here comes his friend uh, with his eyes poked out. Uh, and at one point he says, you know, the gods, and I'm paraphrasing, no, I'm at Kahamaker, but he said the gods are like, you know, they're like little boys that punish us just for fun. You know, that's an interesting man versus God or the gods concept in the character. If somebody has that kind of problem, how's that going to be resolved? Other kinds of conflict? Internal. Yeah. In the cartoons, you know, it's, you've got the little angel on one shoulder, the devil. Go ahead and do it. Yeah. You know, and uh, you have those voices in your head. And I think that's one of our most, uh, well, some of the most beautiful psalms are David wrestling with that, do I or don't I? Paul is real clear about, you know, there are things I want to do and I don't do them and things I don't want to do and I do. Uh, we understand that man versus self. Um, man versus nature. We're trying to, here come the, Chariots of the Egyptians, and there's this big sea. It's us versus the sea. What do we do? Man versus nature or the droughts. And then sometimes, probably not, man versus the machine is always an interesting kind of conflict for me. You know, I think man invented the wheel and then it ran over him. Uh, where, do you ever feel like you're, any of you have to fight with technology? <laughs> have you tried to call your uh, internet provider and actually find a, you know, you know, they, did you know that you can get online? That's why I'm calling you. So, but you don't have a story without conflict. Even if we love our characters, we kind of like to see them get into trouble so we can see them get out of trouble. So let's see what the, our little... Oh, they grabbed their own one. You can't do a thing with the... Oh, yeah, you have to turn it the right way. Right, and this, this is when I click and it'll we're come We're learning out. how to read different types of literature in the Bible. And we're going to start by talking about biblical narrative. So narratives, in their most basic form, have characters in a setting going through a series of events. And how those events are selected and then arranged by an author, that's called the plot. A basic plot line is the character in her setting. And then something new or unexpected happens, causing problems, that lead up to some ultimate conflict, which is then resolved when the character finds herself changed, living in a new world. Now, when reading narratives, it's important to understand every scene in the context of its larger plot line. You can make the same story have a totally different message if you ignore where it occurs in the plot. This happens all the time when people read the Bible. Really? Yeah, take, for example, the story about Gideon. There's this well-known scene where Gideon's trying to discern whether God will help him win the battle, and he requests a sign from God. Yeah, Gideon lays a wolf fleece on the ground and asks that in the morning the fleece be wet with dew, but the ground totally dry, and God doesn't. Now, if you look at the scene just by itself, what is the conflict? How can Gideon know if he'll succeed? And the resolution? Test God, ask for a sign, and find out. Yeah, and that's how many people actually read this story, and it totally misses the point, because it's ignoring the larger plot line. Really? Yeah, so let's start from the beginning, you'll get the context. The story begins with Gideon and the Israelites living in fear because they're oppressed by an invading evil, the Midianites. 
Got it. Then there's the call to action. God commissions Gideon to defeat the Midianites and save Israel. Yeah, this is shaping up to be a good story. But then Gideon's super hesitant. So he asked God to do this magic trick, a sign, so I can know it's really you talking to And God <coughs> stoops to his level. He gives him a sign by lighting this fire on an altar. So Gideon's already asked for a sign. And that's not all. In the next scene, God tells Gideon to tear down an altar to another god, but Gideon's so afraid, he doesn't like that. So, Gideon's skeptical and also a bit of a coward. Then we come to the moment where Gideon's about to face the Midianites, and he's still uncertain, so he asks for another sign, the fleece. He says, I want to know if you'll save Israel by my hand. And God gives him that sign. And he's still uncertain. So he asks for even one more sign, which is just a variation of the previous sign. Okay, so Gideon's asking for way too many signs. Exactly. In the larger context, it's clear the plot conflict is not how can Gideon discern the mysterious will of God. The real conflict is, when will this guy get his act together and start trusting God? Okay, so then what's the resolution? We have to keep reading. So Gideon gathers this huge army, 30,000 soldiers, to fight and God says, no, way too many men. He whittles the army down to 300. Why would he do that? Well, Gideon's been testing God, so now God returns for favor. He tells Gideon to arm these 300 soldiers with trumpets and torches, and then surround the Midianites at night and make all this noise in the hills, which sounds ridiculous, but Gideon doesn't. And the noise scares the Midianites into this frenzy. They start destroying each other in the dark while Gideon looks on safely from the hills. So this story isn't offering the reader tips for discerning God's will. No, it's about God's commitment to use weak people with deep flaws to do more than they could have imagined. Okay, so short scenes, like Gideon and the Fleece, are combined with other scenes making up a larger plot. And tracing the conflict and resolution through the plot helps you see the message the author is trying to get across. Now, Gideon's story has been set alongside many other stories that are also about these flawed, often questionable leaders called judges. And each of these has its own internal plot. But then altogether they make up a whole movement of the biblical story, the period of the judges, and that has its own unified plot. And there are many movements within the story of the Bible. Exactly. And all the smaller stories, hundreds of them, they fit within the context of their own movements. And then these movements together make up the building blocks of the grand plotline of the whole story of the Bible. So no matter where I'm reading in the Bible, I need to pay attention to these different layers of plot so I can read each story in context. Exactly. The Bible is such a sophisticated piece of literature. And so all these smaller plot lines keep overlapping, building up the tension. And when you back up, you can see how they've all been woven together into the unified story that leads to Jesus. All right. So before we move on to uh, character, think to think about plot, whether you're tell making up a story or whether you're telling a, a story of something that happened, you always need to consider who, you know, what is my purpose, who is my audience. And the same thing is true of most of the, sto the stories in the Bible. I mentioned last week, we've been reading uh, first, first Chronicles after reading the Kings, and there, uh, have you ever noticed there's some parallels there? There's some of the same stories, but it's not all the same. In fact, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, are really full of well-developed narratives, whereas Chronicles 
takes those stories for a different point. The book of Chronicles is to remind these people who maybe have felt God's absence that they're still part of this line of David. And so we don't get all the bad things that Ahab did in particular. If you want to know those, read the other book. But the stories are told for a purpose. Do you, do you know people who, who don't know how to eliminate details from their stories? <laughs> My son Ben, John is here. I, I won't talk about him, but his, his brother Ben is one of these that can go to a movie and you'll say, tell me about the movie. And it takes him longer to tell you about the movie than it took for him to actually watch the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Every detail. When I say, what's it about? I want to know, I really want to know the theme, not the plot. And so when, you're when a story is being told, What's the purpose? Who's the audience? Because I do believe that all these stories that make up the Bible had a, an immediate audience and they have an, an intention for us. There's a purpose for us to read it. And so keeping that in mind, what, what's, what's in there? What's left out? And po point of view is really interesting too. Uh, and I think it mentions, may mention this a little in one point here, I guess talking about character is a lot of times it's, you, know, you, have, you can have a narrator that's part of the story, you can have a narrator that's subjective. Have you ever read a book that was so didactic that the, the writer is telling you what to think and telling you about the characters? But a lot of times, especially in the Old Testament stories, we find out what the characters do, and you don't have this little narrator saying, and that was really bad. A lot of things that David does, for instance, you know, there's some that it's pretty clear they're wrong, but there's some he'll do something, and I'll think, well, he's a man after God's own heart. This must have been okay. David lied, for instance. You know, there were times where he was deceptive. And yet, if you pay attention to the story, the narrator, the story, the, the writer of the story doesn't weigh in on everything. It's, it's because he's moving toward a different kind of a theme or plot line. But for instance, if you pay attention to details, remember when David's really hungry and he gets the priest to give him the bread? And we think, well, that was wrong. He wasn't supposed to do that. Uh, but he needed to eat. But we forget, if you keep reading, there are other consequences. What happened to that priest who let him have the bread? He was killed. He was killed. A little later, his sons, uh, if, pay attention, those genealogies that you gloss over, he had some sons that held that story in their head for a long time and finally exact revenge. So looking at the big picture in the plot is real interesting. My favorite part of narrative is character. Doris Betts is a North Carolina writer, and she said character is more important than plot. That's why you can read a story again and again, even though you, you know how it turns out. Do you, do you watch a movie and hope it turns out the same way? Is our, isn't this developed a lot in the subplots? Oh, yeah. Character section. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, sometimes, in fact, what makes you really sad about ending a book? Do you ever feel like you miss the people? Why do people keep reading Harry Potter? Or, you know, the, the, there are characters you get to know. And it's like visiting them again. Don't you have friends that you have? I mean, we could almost number some of our stories. We tell the same ones, and we, you start to get far, far way through it, and you realize, oh, I've told you this before. But if you're kind, you just listen and laugh anyway, because you still like it. Oh, I remember her, yeah. If you're writing a work of fiction, you can either be a direct, you can use direct characterization. Uh, books that, you know, the, the books that I kind of blow off are the ones where the author starts, you know, tell me, you know, she, she had beautiful blue eyes. You get all the physical description and all the personality is told to you by a narrator. 
That doesn't make us have to think any. But the best stories we find out a little at a time. So it, whether you're reading in the text or reading, uh, picking up a novel, there are really four main ways we can find out what a character or what a person is like. And one is physical description. Should you judge people by their appearance? Well, not in that way. But can, what are some things you can tell about people by looking? Generally, male, female, ethnicity, age. You can tell if they're happy or sad. You can tell there are certain things you can tell just by physical appearance, uh, by the way they're dressed. If you ever see somebody, have you ever seen somebody wearing a suit that you don't normally see, wearing anything but jeans, and we'll say, "Oh, you got a job interview, or you're going to the funeral," uh, because they're out of character. You can tell by what somebody's wearing sometimes. UT fan. So physical description does play a part in stories, as we'll see in the little uh, clip, not so much in the Old or New Testament. You can also tell a lot about a person or a character by what they say and what they think. Even the dialect, if we're given, if we're given dialogue, you can say, oh, there's a, you know, it's, it's a southern girl, or uh, this person doesn't have a lot of, uh, hasn't had a lot of grammar instruction, or... It doesn't seem to be comfortable with the, uh, with the English language. Thoughts are a little trickier, and sometimes thoughts tell more about a character than their words. You know, the cartoons, how can you tell it's the character's thinking and not talking out loud? You know, the, the little air bubble. You go, oh, that's a thought. That's one of those uh, little tricks to let the reader know this isn't being said out loud. If you watch a play, how do we know what the characters are thinking? If they're looking at the crowd. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that soliloquy where they kind of break that fourth wall. And, yeah, to be or not to be. He didn't handle it, didn't expect the people in the audience to go, I vote for to be. Oh, he's, he's thinking, but he's having to say it out loud so we know what he's thinking. But in uh, prose, it's a little easier. You just say, he thought to himself. He wondered. It's a little easier. What people do tells a lot about them. A narrator doesn't say he was really clumsy. Just, you know, he walked in and tripped over his own feet. Uh, and that tells us a lot. But you also find a lot about characters from either how people act toward them or what other people say about them. You, know, you get, if you, any of you that have taught preschool or kindergarten, how long does it take to recognize the pecking order in a group? Ah. I mean, you, queen, the, the little queen bee uh, that all the other girls want to swarm around, immediately, you can tell who's the kid that's, you know, the outsider without a word being said sometimes by the way they act to one another, or what they say about each other. It's, it's more interesting to hear one, another character's view on you. Uh, a good example of that is in the story of Abigail. Remember when, when David's ready to, to kill old Nabal, and Abigail comes in and she says, oh, you know, he, he's a scoundrel, I know. His name even means he's a fool. Uh, we, are, we, we learn some things about how he acts, but it's really interesting to have his wife tell you what kind of, what kind of character he is. So let's uh, turn this the right way. Okay. Another thing, and again, angles class, there are types of characters. Static characters, some characters just stay the same. They don't change. I heard a, a writer recently say that Agatha Christie got tired of Hercule Perot. She kept having to write about him because everybody liked him, but he never changes. His character doesn't change. In the Bible, Job's character doesn't change. Do his circumstances change? Yeah. But he's that solid rock. You know, I'm not happy about this, but you know, he stays the same all the way through. On the other hand, uh, 
think about Joseph, that little small brat that wants his little coat. And, and then he, you know, the, the change that happened from the time Joseph is sold into slavery until he's you know, second in command in Egypt, he changes a lot. He grows. Um, Ebenezer Scrooge is a classic dynamic character, and it's that change that we watch that's important. And then some, some characters are round and some are flat. There are some characters where you feel like you know them. I had a friend who cried during a Bible study when we got the part where King David died. Because we knew the good, we knew the bad. You know a lot about David. We know his thoughts, we know his weaknesses, we know his strengths. But imagine how long the Bible would have to be if every character had to be fleshed out like that. Even in a story, if you were going to do a setting, set a class, a story in a classroom, you know, you'd have your, some characters and then you might have uh, the class clown, the cheerleaders, the jocks, uh, the stoners. You, you, you just have a word or two and you don't need to know all about them. They're playing minor roles and everybody can kind of fill in a little bit. Hero doesn't always mean the person who does, in the narrative at least, hero isn't always a good person. It's just the main character that things are happening to. Just a, briefly, sometimes we know we have characters who are motivated. We know why they do what they do. Sometimes we want to. In the, in the grand scheme of things, uh, in the big arching story, we decided last week who's the protagonist in the story of the Bible? The protagonist is God. The antagonist is? But then you have all kinds of other conflicts that are going on. And secondary characters are just the ones that aren't. Right, so let's see if we can. We're talking about how to read biblical narratives. Or in other words, how to read stories. Right. And one of the main ingredients of any good story is a character who encounter conflict and then have to overcome. Yeah, let's talk about characters. In most stories, we quickly identify with characters because, just like them, we're in our own story, having our own conflicts that we need to overcome. Yeah, and good stories have characters with relatable struggles. We can watch them react to these challenges in different ways, and we get to see what happens as a result. Through characters, an author can show us their view of what it means to be human. The Bible's no different. Biblical stories use characters as a mirror so we can see ourselves and discover our own human nature in the reflection. The thing about characters in the Bible is that they can be hard to relate to. I mean, often there's very little detail given about them. Yeah, biblical authors develop characters differently than modern narratives. They prefer to communicate a lot in minimal detail. For example, we rarely hear what people look like in the Bible, but when we do, it's crucially important for the story. Like we're told that Saul is tall, and David was kind of a runner. And these become images of their moral character. Saul's height matches his love of status and power to impose authority, while David humbly accepts his low status and allows God to exalt and deliver him. So people's physical appearances are symbolic. Yeah, very often. Like Esau's hairy body fits his animal-like behavior, and Jacob's smooth skin matches his deceptive slippery nature. What other clues do we get about biblical characters? Well, often people's names symbolize their role in the story. Abraham, in Hebrew, sounds like father of a multitude. Jacob means deceiver. Ruth means refreshment. And Saul, his name means the one asking. He's the flawed king that people request. So by packing all this meaning with very little detail, biblical stories can do a lot in a little space. 
And they even leave out things that modern readers want to know about these characters. Like, they rarely come out and tell us people's thoughts or motives. Right, like when Moses saw an Egyptian feeding an Israelite, he kills him on the spot. But why? Was this righteous anger, or did he just lose his cool? And was it okay with God that he did it? Yeah, we're not told. Because biblical authors usually avoid giving moral commentary. They would rather have a character's words and actions reveal their motives, and then leave us to judge their behavior by seeing the consequences. So in the case of Moses, this murder is the beginning of a pattern of his anger getting the best of him with bad results. This choice forces him to run and hide in the desert for 40 years. So it was a bad thing. But he does meet his wife out there, so it's a good thing? Exactly. It forces you to ponder. Through all these techniques, the biblical narratives keep their stories compact, memorable, but also engaging. Can we go back? Time is part of it. All right. Just be, so they use that, uh, what seems to be the most glowing term uh, in, in this culture, relatable. Uh, how, are, how, how do we relate to characters? Do you have characters in the Bible that you identify with when you read? Do you catch yourself, when you're reading anything, do you ever find that you're identifying with one character, that you put yourself inside of it? Uh, how is that useful to identify with the characters? Well, you can see how they handled the situation, either good or bad. They either failed to recognize it, or why did they fail, and how they used it to maybe come out of the situation better than they went into it, or they may have spiraled into it even worse. Yeah. So it's a, it's a chance to analyze from all kinds of angles so, mm -hmm. you know, what you encounter in your own life. Mm -hmm. Do we learn real well vicariously? We have the opportunity, at least, to see. Uh, and as, it, as the, it pointed out at one point, that the characters are not uh, role models necessarily. You can read in a story in the Bible, and you think it's not. This is how you should behave, or you know, we don't need to be throwing our fleece down just because that seemed to work out for him. There, that there's a bigger story there, but they can be more like a mirror. Or we can put ourselves in that situation and think, oh, I've, you know, I've, in anything you read, I think it comes to life to us or touches us most when you think, oh, I felt just like that. Or I wonder what I would do in that situation. Uh, another, uh, I, think, I think names are so interesting. Uh, whether You wonder whether people look, do you think people live up to what their names are? Or do you think, yes? I wonder, are those names looking backwards or looking forward? Because, I mean, who names their kid, like, weakling or, you know? Yeah. Have you ever, did any of you name your children and then look it up in a book? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, my mom worked with a woman who named her son Chase, and she said, that's what I had to do the rest, you know, so far since he was born. As soon as he could walk, I've been chasing him. Um, and it's interesting, too, when people choose their own names. Yeah. Naomi had a really bad, <laughs> things were not going well, and she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, bitter. Yeah, bitter. And it's interesting that when people go through a change in, in a, a big life change, their name will change for it. Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul. Simon, you know, Simon Peter, you know, he becomes the rock. 
And yet, notice, you can tell sometimes when, uh, like when Jesus would address him a little, you know, when you're Simon again, Simon, Simon. Uh, it's like when your mother calls you by all, your whole name. It has a little, you know, a little different. Or when, we, when we're comfortable speak, you know, speaking someone's nickname, there's, there's a certain familiarity. But then some names have taken on meaning. Like I said, nobody names children Jezebel or Herod or Judas or Adolf. You know, there are just certain names. Uh, uh, no little Saddams in elementary school now. But I think it, when we're looking at how characterization works, realize whose character is revealed throughout the pages. God and it's got a is God a static or dynamic character? Yes. Is he changing? Yes. Yeah. Dynamic sounds good, but God is the same. Yes, yeah. He we, he, he, yeah, he, he does. Do, you know, there there are different ways that we see him, but he's just, there's not really you know contrary to what we say. There's not an Old Testament you know scary God in the New Testament. You know, it's not the wrathful one and then the Santa Claus. He's the same God. He's just and he's merciful. He's complex. He's a round character. There's, there's so much to God that's revealed. And the only way we know his character is, is the, the way it's, it's revealed to, for what he does. How, you know, his, his unlimited mercy to his people, his high expectations, the way that he pursues us is revealed to us on the pages. Also, are there any are there characters that are completely good or completely evil? Jesus. Yeah, yeah. He, he's yeah. He's he's the only one. Uh, and I think maybe that's kind of comforting for us to know that we all have those different levels. And there, David, I think, is one of the most complex characters to me because you see how flawed he is. Would it have been a better story for us if David had been this really perfect guy who never did wrong? It's a, we wouldn't relate to him. And, and we wouldn't see how, I think, God's relationship to him and his mercy toward him and David's willingness, all, you know, his willingness always to, you know, to repent and to keep turning back to God, uh, to admit his mistakes in the way that Saul didn't. Now they're talking about what's a foil character in a story. What's the purpose of a foil character? You. Yeah. Have you ever seen like a really tall guy with a really short girlfriend? Physically, you know, she looks so much shorter because he's tall. Putting two characters side by side that are very different kind of highlights those differences. So I think. The fact you know that we that we seeing how Saul behaves and how he responds to uh, any, you know his wrongdoing be, being revealed is even more noticeable when we see David in his contrite heart. Right. Let's look at setting just a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> setting isn't just window dressing. Setting can you know, setting can just kind of be a backdrop. There are some stories you read that could happen anywhere, anytime, and there's some that couldn't possibly. Band of Brothers pretty much had to be World War II. But then if you've ever seen a Shakespeare performance, a play performed, have you ever seen one that's been set in another place in time? 
You know, uh, I think Richard III, there was a movie made set in Nazi Germany, and I've seen uh, Much Ado About Nothing in uh, the Mediterranean. The, the place is kind of decoration in some ways. In other stories, the setting, is, the setting can be the, uh, the antagonist. Man versus nature. Man, you know, when you're in the wilderness, the it's more than just a backdrop. It couldn't happen somewhere else. Uh, setting is not just place, but it's also time. It can be really specific. Uh, 3rd of June, another sleepy dusty delta day. Or really general, long ago, far away, once upon a time. Sometimes it really matters. And then just the situation. You can have a, a, two different stories set in the same place, but the, like the cultural or social situation can be different. There are a lot of stories that can be said in Nashville and they're very different, even though it's the same place. So we'll see what. In every story you've ever heard, the action took place somewhere, and that place is called the setting. And since we've been learning how to read biblical narratives, let's talk about how settings work in the Bible. So, settings are a crucially important tool in the hands of the biblical authors. Really? Yeah, think of it this way. When you start a story, everything is new. The plot and the characters are a mystery until things unfold. Yeah, we have no idea what to expect. Except, <coughs> authors can use the setting of a story to prepare you for what's coming. How so? Well, let's say a story begins in a courtroom. What do you think is going to happen? I expect a story about crime and justice. Yeah, or how about the setting of a dark, old, rundown house? Oh, something scary is about to happen. Exactly. So settings evoke memories and emotions because of other stories you know that happened in similar places. The authors know this, and they can use settings to generate expectations about what could happen in this story. And a good author will get creative with settings, and he'll mess with your expectations in order to make a point. This happens in the Bible? All over the place. For example, think about the setting Egypt in the Bible. Yeah, big Middle Eastern empire on the Nile. Sure. Now think about the first biblical story where someone ends up in Egypt. It's about Abraham. God calls him to journey by faith to a new land, and he promises to give him a huge family. So he sets out, but he arrives during a famine. Now, is he going to trust God and stay in the promised land, or will he leave the land and go look for food on his own? Yeah, Abraham leaves and goes down to Egypt. And there, in Egypt, things go downhill fast. Abraham denies that Sarah is his wife to save his own neck, and then Pharaoh tries to marry her for himself. Okay, first impression of Egypt, not a great place to visit. But God then rescues them, he strikes Egypt with plagues, and so Pharaoh relents and sends Abraham away with loads of wealth. So, what do we learn about Egypt as a setting from this story? It's the place people end up because of stupid decisions, but it's also a place where God comes and rescues his people. Yep, and the next main story in Egypt follows the same pattern. Abraham's great-grandsons make a bunch of stupid choices, and they eventually lead them to Egypt because of another family. Down in Egypt. Uh -oh. So generations pass, and the family ends up as slaves in Egypt, and what do you think is going to happen? God's going to send some plagues and rescue his people. It's like he saw it coming. After the Israelites get back to the Promised Land, God tells them to never go back to Egypt for any reason. It's the place of trouble and oppression. So when future biblical characters go to Egypt, I'm supposed to cringe. Right. Like Solomon, at the peak of his wealth and power, he married the king of Egypt's daughter, and then he started sending Israelites there to import Egyptian stout. 
And then, a generation later, that alliance goes bad. Egypt oppresses Israel all over again. So biblical settings carry with them all these memories of previous stories, which create expectation. Yeah, it's a brilliant literary device to infuse stories with meaning. Now, biblical authors, they're brilliant. They can build up your expectations, but also creatively mess with them. Like how? Egypt's a perfect example. In the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus is born, his family flees to Egypt. Uh-oh, so this is a problem. Hey, you would think so, but pay attention. Instead of Egypt being the bad place, it's the place of safety. Because who are they fleeing from? King Herod, who is behaving exactly like Pharaoh did, but he rules Jerusalem, not Egypt. Matthew is messing with me to show how Jerusalem has become Egypt. Exactly. You can find these kinds of patterns in many different biblical settings. Babylon, Moab, the wilderness, Bethlehem, the list goes on. Which is a big list. And it gets bigger. Because sometimes the setting isn't just a place on a map. It's a type of situation. But they work the same way that settings do. For example, when people move toward the east, expect trouble. Adam and Eve were banished to the east, and then Cain wanders to the east. People move to the east to build Babylon. And all of these narratives are designed to point forward to when the Israelites as a people will be exiled to the east in Babylon. Yeah, nice. Which leads to one more type of setting in biblical narrative, and that's time, or how long events take. Like, time periods of 40 are often associated with stories where people's faithfulness is tested. Noah in the boat for 40 days and 40 nights. Then he gets off and gets totally drunk. The Israelites got impatient during their 40 days of waiting for Moses on Mount Sinai, so they made the golden calf. Or after the Israelite spies investigate the land for 40 days, the people rebel, so they have to wander in the desert for 40 years. But then there's the story of Jesus, who was tested in the desert for 40 days, and he reverses the expectation. He overcomes the test. Exactly. Across the whole Bible, places, situations, and time periods become full of meaning by evoking memories and setting expectations. And the New Testament authors reuse all of these settings to show how Jesus is the one carrying our world from the garden, out of Egypt and the wilderness, and into the new creation. All right, I think our our time is just about up. So, some of you have children to get. Any, but if you have any questions or comments, yes. Next week, we're going to move on. We talked about prose. We're going to move to biblical poetry in Santa Collins. We're going to be teaching about poetry in general and specifically the book of Job. All right. Thank you.